5, verse 1. Here's what it says. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Father, we just we commit this time to you. We desire, ask this morning, we would be moved to a place of thirst. Ask that we would thirst for more of you in a way that we haven't. Ask, Lord, that all the distractions of life, um, all the momentary pleasures and substitutes for your presence would just be removed from us. Ask that we would just have a month with you to where we begin to have our excitement, our interest, our intrigue, our affections moved and stirred in a way that we haven't in a very long time. And everyone said, amen. And I'll be seated. And you can stay seated for a while, too. All right, so this is January 1st, right? So um, the infomercials and most of the church series, you know, are all going to be saying the same thing, right? It's a new year. It's time for you to have a better you, right? January is the month of resolutions. I'm going to work out. I'm going to the gym at least once this year, right? Um, We will diet and... We're going to budget, and I mean, we're going to be just the best versions of ourselves for a week, maybe a month, if you guys are really strong-willed, right? And so, you know, January, the message for most of us in most circles is it's time for us to get back to winning at life, right? Because that's the idea, isn't it? The idea is to, to get more in shape, to get ourselves more focused, to be more disciplined so that we can do better, so that we can have better, right? The idea is that the goal is if we would just tweak these things in our lives, we would have a better life. And of course, you know, inside churches, the message is going to be very similar. If we would just tweak a few things with God, then God would give us all the things that we want. We would be able to win at life, to be victorious, to you know, have your best life now, right? But welcome to Grace Church. We're going to lose, uh, learn, if you would, not how to win at life. For the next month, we're going to learn how to lose. How to be a loser, correct? Now, uh, if you guys are paying attention to that passage, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, this sermon is basically the first, the first and the most detailed teaching that Jesus gives about his kingdom. It's his opening statement, if you would. It's the way that he begins to open us up to our understanding of what he is here to do. And what's interesting about this is that what, how do you put this, the things that he is saying, these isms, those who are poor in spirit, those, you know, who are meek and mild, those who, you know, hunger and thirst for righteousness, these are the ones who are going to find their fill in his kingdom. Now, what's interesting is, with the the account of Luke, Luke even, he takes the same 
exact statements, but he spreads them out in his gospel, but he tweaks a few things. And so for Luke, it's not just those who are poor in spirits, those who are poor in this. And for Luke, it's not just those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, it's those who hunger and thirst for justice, because they've been wrong. And so what we're seeing here is that the, the doors of this new kingdom, if you would, when Jesus stands up and says, I am here to establish this place, and in this place that I'm going to be king over, the doors are open to these people. Let me summarize it for you. Everyone who's going to run into my kingdom are those who are losers. Now, the phrase he uses in Matthew is, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Now, that sounds awesome if we happen to find ourselves at the bottom of the heap, right? Uh, now, one thing that we have to understand here, Jesus and his kingdom never seemed to fit the idea or the image that anyone ever thought it had. You know, if you've been at Grace for a while, you, you know this. We, you know, we got in detail. His kingdom and his ministry, his life, it did not fit the image that the Jews had. It did not fit the image that the Romans had. And, you know, frankly, it doesn't fit the image that most of us have this morning. Uh, it is a big stretch for us to read the Gospels and to actually see Jesus coming to give us our best life now. There's a stretch. And the people he speaks to and the things he says... Anyone who can follow after me must have his best life now. He says, anyone who can follow after me must what? Lose his life for my sake. And in the Old Testament prophets, they called him, he would be the cornerstone. But the cornerstone, the, the first stone in which God's going to build his new house, his new family, would also be something else. It wouldn't only be something to build upon, it's going to also be a stumbling block. The very life and message of Jesus, the gospel itself, was going to cause men to stumble over it because they did not expect it, and most importantly, they do not want it. So what happens for most of us today, his message still causes most of us to stumble over it. We go, what in the world is he talking about? For me personally, it was the Gospels that began to mess with me, probably seven years ago. Uh, you know, in time of prayer and, and, and study, I would go over the Gospels and I would try my best to find ways to say, Jesus didn't really mean that we have to carry a cross. What he really meant was that the cross is the symbol for all of life. And so like, what he means when he says cross, he means that he's going to carry a cross and we just get to be, have all the benefits. Maybe what he meant when he calls us to follow him, you know, into suffering. Maybe when he tells us that those who would be the greatest are going to have to be the slaves of all. Maybe what he means when he says slave is like something not a slave. Maybe Jesus just isn't good with words, right? Maybe Jesus was a little bit confused. <laughs> Maybe we could sit down with Jesus and say, well, I don't think you understand the way it's supposed to work. See, I come to you, and I pray, and I come to church, and I trust you, and I extend faith. And when I extend faith, when I pull that slot machine down, 
I'm going to have a better car, a more attractive spouse, a raise and a job promotion, and you better believe everything in my life is going to go just like that. But then you start going, oh, okay, well, Jesus was crucified. That doesn't look very good, but, you know, he was doing that for everyone else. Okay, well, Peter was crucified, and John was crucified, and I can't find a single disciple who wasn't crucified. That doesn't make sense. John wasn't crucified, but he died alone on an island. Maybe God gave him an island because of his faith. (laughs) It was a prison, but, you know, that's okay. Now, we're not talking about a God or a kingdom that does not have any kind of earthly blessing. What we're talking about is we have to understand the point. We have to understand what is the heart of following Jesus. And what comes into this is we have to understand it's not that we have to be losers, if you would. The first statement, um, Matthew 5, he's not saying the kingdom of God is only for these people, the poor in spirit, those you know who are actually poor, those who hunger for righteousness, those who need justice. He's not saying it's only for these people. When he begins to teach the parables, it becomes more clear. He's saying those who will embrace the kingdom are those who have nothing to lose. Those who will embrace the kingdom are those who need something better than what they have. Those who are eager to listen and to chew on it and to consider it, those who are willing to be moved by Jesus are those who need something. When you begin to say the Gospels, it gets very uncomfortable for us. Because the people who seem to understand what it means to be religious, what it means to do the right things, to make God happy, who study the Scriptures, who pray, who tithe, who fast, all of these people tend to be the ones who are on the wrong side of Jesus. They're always the ones that He's... They're the only ones He's ever attacking. And all these people who, you know, who don't have any background and don't understand, these people who are poor, these people who are you know, sinners, if you would, these are the people who he's always explaining here, the kingdom is for you. They're the ones who tend to follow him and to take him seriously. And, and it begins to kind of bother us, if you allow it to. So the question for us is this. How do we find our way into this kingdom? You know, I I wouldn't consider, most of us in this room would not be considered losers when you compare us as far as what we have on our life to people who aren't in other places on the earth. Our homes have not been bombed. We, you know, our our, our children, uh, you know, have not been murdered. We have not been beheaded. We have a car, a house. Two cars, coats, shoes. We have many things that would make us not fit in that category. So if we aren't people who are in this place where we are just hungry for something better, how do we enter the kingdom? And it starts with, for us, for someone who is in a place where we are winning, if you would, at life, it starts for us to have to embrace the parts of life that we don't see as winning. It starts with us for having to embrace things in life that seem like losing. And 
Let me explain this differently. What it means for us to be the last, uh, what it means for us to be losers, if you would have followed Jesus, it's not that we stop trying at life. It's not that you just like, you know, stop going to work and, you know, you stop taking showers. You, you know, you, you stop your house payment. That's not what I'm saying. Check, check. What I'm saying is that, first of all, we have to understand that we as Christians are playing a different game. Let me explain that. Have you guys seen the bumper stickers that says, um, he who has the most toys at the end wins? Yes, right? It's silly and stupid, right? But this is the game that we play, is it not? Most of our energy and our time and our choices in our life are spent trying to amass more of something, right? And for most people, it's more of money, more power, more sex, or more success. You can be a terrific person, but you are still playing the same game. What's dangerous for us is that we have to understand something. When we begin to when we begin to take the way that the world tells us success is. The world tells us that success is. We have accomplished many things. We are we have money, we have resources, we have influence, power, we we have access to all pleasures that we want to feel with. When we take this idea of what it means to win at life, when we take this scorekeeping, because, you know, money, sex, power, success, all these things are a ways for us to keep score. It's ways for us to know how we're doing. Does that make sense to you? It, it, it tells you how you're doing in life. When you don't have any money, it tells you that you're not doing well. When you see the guy over here who has this nice house and yours is tiny, it says, oh no, I could be doing as well as that person. When you've tried to launch a business and it fails, but this person launched a business and it does so well, you say, oh, I'm not doing very well. It's scorekeeping. It's how we know if we're winning at life or not. When we take this framework of what it means to be successful and we apply it to the gospel, dangerous things happen. We begin to rate and understand how we're doing with God based on how we understand the world. So if I'm doing well with God, that means I'm going to have success, I'm going to have influence and power, I'm going to have money. I won't talk about the sex, because we know that, you know, superstars in the church don't ever fall into sex problems, right? Okay, let's just get that out of the way, right? Be honest, would you? Okay. When we begin to take this framework when we allow the world to tell us what prosperous is, what being successful, being happy looks like, happy looks like this, and we begin to apply it to the gospel, we begin to, to find holes and frustrations. And when we're not getting these things from God, we say either I'm not doing something right or I've got to find something, some new way to get what I need from God. There is a name for that. Manipulation. Your kids learn it early. 
When your kid wants extra time, you know, to stay up or to watch TV or he wants more candy, whatever, they learn quickly what knobs to turn, levers to pull. Now, what's so fundamentally different about the kingdom of heaven is that it works, it's an upside down kingdom. Everything is in reverse. Those who are seen as blessed, those who are seen as lucky, if you would, those who are seen as having the favor of God on them are the exact people that the world sees as being losers. Those who are in trouble, those who have problems. And see, the disciples even brought this up with Jesus. They said, well, have you heard about the tower that fell you know, on those Jews over there? Well, surely God was against them. Surely they didn't have faith because if the tower, if bad things happened to good people, surely they weren't doing certain things for God. Do you see the connection? And so if, I don't, if, if my bank account hurts, if I lose someone to cancer, if I go through divorce, then surely I has to be a faith problem, has to be an obedience problem. Because if I do everything right, everything falls in line. Now, you guys have your Bibles. Let's go ahead and move on to uh, John 4.7. John 4, 7 through 17. The context here, Jesus is uh, he's at the well, and you guys have heard about the, the story many times, but there's a few verses I want to highlight. When the woman came to draw water, he said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone to town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For the Jews do not associate with the Samaritan. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, she replied, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up for eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may get thirsty, <clears throat> so, may, so may not get thirsty, my iPad not turn off. This stupid iPad has been doing this nonstop. And so he talks to her, and it all works out really well. <laughs> what is wrong with this? Okay. Not focusing on that. We have to understand is this, you know, there's all sorts of things going on here. There's, there's all these reasons for why, you know, he's at Jacob's well and he's saying these things. It's a loaded passage. But on a more simple note, what you need to understand is this. All of these other things that we go to, these other wells that we go to, success, money, happiness, you know, things, toys, vacations, whatever it is, these, all of these things are wells that will leave you thirsty for more. Now, it does not matter how much of any of these things you have, success, money, power, sex, whatever, these things always leave you needing more of that thing. Now, or someone who never had money before, okay? 
The idea of having $100,000 sounds amazing. Now, to someone who's had $100,000, they aren't exactly content to just sit with $100,000, are they? They want, what? $200,000. And then, oh, five, and then 10, and, you know, it goes on and on and on. Now, you know, just, you can apply that analogy to all these different situations. Okay, it doesn't matter which of these wells you go to, when you drink of it, it tastes great. But if you go back and have just that same amount, it's not the same. When you taste success, it feels great, but you're never happy with just success. I do not like any Alabama fans. You, my friend, I don't like you right now. Nick Saban has plenty of titles, right? He could share. He could retire and just leave, right? I mean, would that be? He doesn't need anymore. But who is he without more? People, you know, who are successful at anything, when they have to leave it, they have no idea who they are without it. And again, apply that to any well in your life. People who love their children with all their heart and who live for their kids, when their kids go off and get married, they are lost. Most divorce happens after the kids leave. Who are we without the kids? I have no clue. I don't even know who you are. All of these wells leave us thirsting for more. And what happens is this. The reason that we have to flip the game over, the reason that we cannot allow ourselves to play this game, you know, to run the rat race, if you would, the reason we can't allow ourselves to keep score this way is it never is just, it's never a safe thing. Well, you know, money's important. We got to go work for money because blah, blah, blah. Yeah, sure, that's great. But having, when you begin to connect money and success and sex or whatever it is to God, okay, this always begins to create this broken down image of who God is and who you are. And it will always begin to take a path that leads you away from following Jesus. What happens is this. Following Jesus leads you a different path. Following Jesus, you know, as he states it, we carry our cross daily. We embrace death daily. We die to selves, as he says it. And what happens is we refuse to measure life in the way that the world does. It's not about money. It's not about success. It's not about power. I don't care if anyone knows my name after I die. That's not important. And we begin to push all these things away. And what happens is all of a sudden as we push these things away, we begin to see the one thing that matters. Now, how do I say this? Humans are addictive. You were creative. We can put a nice church word on it, okay? You were created to worship. Sound much better? Come on, yes. You were created to be addicted to things. It's, it's first nature for you. Okay, is there anything you've ever really loved that you could easily be like, oh, that's great, and just put it down and walk away? No, you need more of it, and, and more, and more, and more. Were you the boyfriend or the girlfriend who was just a little bit too attached? 
You know what I'm talking about? Okay, whatever. <laughs> Detour, okay. We are programmed innately to attach and to just need, need, need. We need experience and sensation and information and more and more and more. And it takes work to dull that. When your kid first tastes candy, okay, uh, when they first go down a slide or whatever it is, okay, they don't say, that was great, let's go home. Let's do it again. Let's do it again, Daddy. And again. And you say, no. I've already done it. No. No. Exactly like your niece, Matthew. We have to train ourselves how to reel ourselves in in these places. And what happens is we begin to realize that there are certain experiences and pleasures and good things that we can't control. And so now we need to push those appetites away and let's focus only on the things that we can control. I can't make God show up and do these awesome things. But you know what I can do? I can work really hard and get money. And you know what? It feels good to spend money. And you can apply that to anything else. What happens is that the one well which you were created to thirst for, the one well that is so deep you will never have your fill, you always get to have more and more and more, is the one well we can't control. It's the one that it's not up to us how much we get when we get it. And so it's the first well that we always want to walk away from. The reason we have to learn to live as losers is because it's only in this place of embracing pain, sorrow, discomfort. It's only in these places that we truly begin to be willing to come back to the well which we need to come to. We've got an entire month uh, to unpack all this, but I have a quote for you guys here. <clears throat> Newton's first law. You guys, okay, we're all going back to high school, aren't we? Here we go. His first law says this, that an object will remain at rest or in uniform motion, meaning it's going to keep going the same direction it's going. Okay? In a straight line, unless acted upon by an external force. What I want you to understand is this. You are an object at rest. Meaning, you are sitting still or you're just going to keep going and doing exactly what you're doing. Here's why. We crave control and we crave comfort. You crave control and you crave comfort. And so what happens for us is when we live in a place of comfort, we will continue to what? Stay in a place of comfort. Okay. On the fourth or fifth of this week, it's supposed to get very cold, right? One degree outside, something like that, right? When you are inside and you've got your blanket on, the heat up, and you're watching your movie, you got your snack, are you going to all of a sudden throw it off and run outside just to get in the cold, just, just to do it? Who wants comfort? I want discomfort. Will you do that? Will you wake up tonight and roll out of bed and sleep on the floor? Because you know what? That bed's just too comfortable. You will not. You will gravitate and begin to build your life and your habits around staying comfortable. But I applaud all of you, by the way, because if, if you're in this room, 
I've made you feel uncomfortable at least one Sunday. And you came back. Church planting is built on one principle. We find out what you want and we feed it to you. And of course, as you guys can tell, we just hate that. We try to agitate you every single day. What can we do? Turn off the heat next week. We're going to... Here's why. Because these external forces that begin to move us, most of the time, the, the external things are going to move us to, to move out of our comfort, that are going to cause us to grow and to change and to move forward with God are hardly ever good things. For example, if you're sitting on your couch, you know, with your lazy boy and your, you know, the heater's on the TV, if I walk in and say, hey, here is an even better chair that massages you while you watch TV. If you move into that chair, it's going to become even harder for you to leave comfort. Does that make any sense? Hardly ever do good things move you into uncomfortable places. Here's $10 million. Now it's time for you to move to Africa and sell everything you own. No. And so what happens, most of us have an idea of God and the gospel that it's all about comfort and good things. And if I would just get to the right spot of faith and, and practices, everything, you know what? Lazy boy recliner, the TV set right, the, the heat set just right. And oh man, this is awesome. And we're just going to wait for Jesus to come back in glory. It's the opposite. It's discomfort that moves us. It doesn't take faith for us to handle good things. It takes faith for us to handle the bad. It's when you experience disappointment, suffering, loss, when someone dies. Few people ever come to me and say, you know what, I can't, you know, this whole God, Christianity thing, I won the lottery last week, and I'm done with the church because, you know, I just can't handle the church anymore. I've never had that told me in my entire life. What I get all the time was, I got divorced. This person died. My child was raped. Terrible, terrible things happen. And we don't, whenever we have a gospel, that is only about blessing and comfort and good things. We don't know how to handle pain. And what that means simply is we don't know how to handle real life. And so the moment that something happens and, it, and it's uncomfortable, it challenges, it's crisis, there's questions, I don't have answers, I don't know what to do. We don't know what to do. What you have to understand is this. It's discomfort that is the staircase, if you would. It's the escalator. It's, it's the on-ramp for us to truly begin to step into faith, into trusting, into leaning, into questions and learning. And It's discomfort. It's, it's pain and loss and tragedy that cause this image we have of our life and the world to begin to crumble around us. Well, God is good and He loves us, and so bad things don't happen to good people. And then bad things happen, and it just starts to crumble, and we don't know what to do.
If you guys go to John 3, John 3, verse 1. This is Nicodemus, and you guys have all heard this, this story, but what's interesting about Nicodemus is he is what you consider a winner in the world. Uh, he's part of the Sanhedrin. He is a very powerful, influential, rich, intelligent man who's respected. He has seemingly everything that you would want to have. Because of this, we find him here. He sneaks up to Jesus to talk to him uh, at night, by the way, because he doesn't want to be seen by the other winners. Okay, He's sneaking to the loser table, and he doesn't want anyone to see him sneak over there. And so he goes over here at night. In uh, verse 2, he says this. He says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. And of course, the response is, how can someone be born again when they are old? Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. <clears throat> the response of Jesus, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. Now, What's interesting here about this passage is the metaphor that Jesus uses. I get really uncomfortable with the idea of birthing anything, right? The Apostle Paul loves this metaphor. Jesus loves to use the word birthing. I'm not very comfortable with it. Come on, let's be honest. Men, are you comfortable with the idea of birthing? Okay. <laughs> okay, anyways, we can tell uh, the men who are in the room, the ones who weren't, right? The ones who are at the feet and the ones who are at the head of the wife. Like, yeah. Come on, behind the safety of the sheet? Oh, loosen up. Come on. It's an uncomfortable metaphor, right? It's not comfortable. It's just like the incarnation. Let's talk about baby Jesus in the manger. Let's not talk about how he came to the manger, right? It's not comfortable. I love... As uncomfortable as it is, I believe that this metaphor speaks so powerfully. It's, it's an image for us to understand something that we cannot see or, or touch or taste yet or experience yet. And so he says that to be birthed to, to enter into this new world, the kingdom of God, this place where there is wholeness, rightness, you know, uh, blessing, eternal life, all these good things, if you would. The way into this new world is through a process that's very familiar to us. Birthing. You must be reborn. Rebirth. Nicodemus responds the way that most men would. That's not possible. <laughs> that is not physically possible, Jesus. I'm not sure if you understand. Men don't understand this, but women... Is birthing a painless, comfortable process? Apparently, you guys had some easy births. <laughs> no, it wasn't that great, but eh. I mean, from what I've heard, I was in the room. <laughs> from the four-letter words I heard, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. She was singing hymns and spiritual songs to the Lord. <laughs> Yeah, if you guys know my wife, that was not the case. 
It is a messy, dirty, and painful process. What's interesting about it is what I heard from Nisa, more than the pain, she would always tell me it's not the birthing. Like, that's hard and it's terrible and it stinks, right? But she hated the discomfort that she would have. Because in the birthing process, and obviously when you're in the room, you know, it's painful and all, and screaming, and it's crazy. But they are, their bodies have to go through this discomfort for months prior to that. They can never get comfortable. Their back always hurts. They're always, you know, aching or swelling. It's just, it's not a comfortable place to be. And what's beautiful about this metaphor is that this physical thing on the earth, birthing, which we have, the one way that we know that new life enters the world is the most uncomfortable process which we know. It's straining and it's painful and it's difficult and it hurts and it, it, it pushes the physical body all the way to the limit of what it's able to handle. And of course, what happens in this process is the baby itself wants to stay in the comfort. Right? I mean, we don't want to go too far in this metaphor, okay? But there are contractions, okay? There's pressure that has to push the baby out. Because if the baby could do what it would do, it would just hang out because it's fed, it's warm. It's a pretty nice place. (laughs) Okay, we'll move on. But you get the idea. Even in birth itself, there must be a pressure, a discomfort that pushes this human, this life, from one world into the next world. And what you have to understand for yourself is this. When, if you are not able to, to hold on to God and hold on to pain, loss, suffering, hurting, you are unable to grow. You're unable to learn, to change, and most importantly, these are the two things, holding on to God and holding on to real life, that are what's the pressure that pushes us in to this new world. It's what pushes us into new life. It's not just a prayer or a nice service. It's the crap in life that causes us to grow up. Think about yourself and your life. When did you really begin to learn and to grow, to mature. It's when you experience pain, loss, frustration, disappointment. Those are the things which have shaped you to be who you are today. And what happens is, it's not that we need bad things to happen all the time. It's that we need to hold on to God through the bad and the good, not just the good. And so when we are walking with God and then bad things happen, all of a sudden... it begins to, to be this catalyst that begins to, to take us from one place into the next. Think about your best friend or your spouse, your children even. When you begin to learn to know someone, to trust them, to love them, it's because you've been through things with them. A marriage who's, who's not ever experienced trouble or pain or obstacle is a weak marriage. 
When you've been through all the junk together, that's when you have a marriage that is strong. You've learned how to go through things and it's brought you closer. And the reason that you have to learn this now, the reason that you have to get the right image of of God, the right image of the gospel, is because you have to begin preparing yourself now. Because when your loved one comes down with cancer, when something bad happens here, when you lose your job at work, these can be things that destroy you, or these can be things that you can allow to begin to pressure you to grow and to move forward with God. There is no resurrection without death. There's no empty tomb without the cross. And every single day of us growing with Jesus requires us holding on to God, but also being willing and open-minded, open-hearted to also go through and embracing, acknowledging, being real and honest about the pain and the discomfort. Would you guys stand with me?